You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Lee Dugatkin. Lee is Professor of Biology and Distinguished Arts and Sciences Scholar in the Department of Biology at the University of Louisville. He is a behavioral ecologist um, who has written a number of different books, uh, including Behind the Crimson Curtain, The Rise and Fall of Peel's Museum. Looks like, is that your most recent book, uh, Lee? It is. It is. That just came out. So um, in 2020, right? Uh, so it's 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 the most recent of, of the books. And um, it's sort of a history of science book on um, early American natural history and museums and adventures. Fantastic. I, I really want to read it. Um, and also, uh, you've uh, authored two textbooks. Lee has authored two textbooks, Principles of Animal Behavior and Evolution, co-authored with Carl Bergstrom, the uh, Norton publication from 2016. And uh, I, I'm um, today I'm going to talk to Lee about his 2017 book, How to Tame a Fox and Build a Dog, which I absolutely loved, which is a kind of very, I guess, a, a detailed um, scientific um, biography and um, begins, begins, I guess, as a detailed kind of biography and history of the um, project to tame silver foxes started by Dmitry Belyev and Yudmila Trout um, and also then goes into a lot of um, fascinating scientific detail. So it's a kind of science-informed um, biography, history, and uh, a really, a really wonderful read. Welcome, Lee. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I, I just, I will just note that that book, you know, on the book, uh, the co my co-author is is Mila who who actually has been running the experiment for the for the last sixty years, and um, uh, is an, an astonishing person. Oh yeah, thank you. Um, and uh, so I'd like to maybe we could begin by talking about. Um, how the um so the silver fox um breeding and domestication project at Academ Gorodok, which is the the central theme of your book. I apologize in advance for butchering any and all Russian names and words. Um could you um could you begin by talking about how how Belyev had the idea for the project and um what the initial difficulties were in setting that project up. So I believe this all began um, during the Stalinist era when Lysenkoism was still at, uh, was still enjoying considerable popularity or even at the height of its popularity. Um, so could you talk a little bit about that, about the origins of the project and um, where Belyev's ideas and training initially came from? 
Sure, sure. Um, and, and just to sort of cast a, a broad net, I mean, basically what the Silver Fox domestication experiment um, is all about is trying to um, understand the process of domestication um, by studying it in, in real time. And, and so the idea was that they would start with um, silver foxes, which are just a variety of, of, of red fox, um, and they would try and domesticate them in real time, year after year, by, um, by basically running a, an, an evolution experiment. Um, now, how it started, so, so the official, the, the, the project really began, the experiment really began around 1960, but Belayev who um, thought of the experiment and was and was the heart and soul of it early on, uh, first started thinking about this in in the mid 1940s. Um, and as you say, um, this was a period when um, the charlatan Trofim Lysenko was still um, very much a, a dangerous force. And so Belayev um, had worked with foxes. Um, for a while, he was basically working at a place called the um, Institute for um, uh, for fur breeding, essentially in Moscow. And you know they work with all sorts of animals um, and minks and foxes were the, were the big ones um, because there was a lot of money to be made by selling mink and fox furs overseas, particularly to the United States and Europe. So Blaeff had some 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 knowledge of 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 foxes and. He um, he was an evolutionary biologist, and um, and he was interested in this process of domestication. And basically, um, when he was looking at, at, at foxes, he began to think um, about this the process of of domestication of dogs that you know started um, in human evolution his uh, human evolutionary history around. Um, 15,000 years ago, um, give or take, there's certainly lots of debate about exactly when, but a long time ago. And, um, and so he was interested in this process and he, um, he also knew a lot about domestication and lots of different species because he had done his undergraduate work at, at a place that, um, was essentially an agricultural academy. And so he had all sorts of experience with lots of domesticated animals. And one of the things that struck him was that um, domesticated species um, share a lot of common characteristics. And, um, you know, so they have, they tend to have uh, floppy ears and curly tails. They tend to have lots of variety and in their fur patterns. They tend to have very low stress hormones, lots of different things. And, and, you know, but they have, he started thinking, you know, why, why is that? What, why, why do we see all these common characteristics in domesticated species? And what he realized was the one thing that our ancestors always needed when they were domesticating the species was to be working with an animal um, that would not, would not bite their heads off. And so he began to formulate this hypothesis that, the one that early on in the process of, of domestication of all animal species, the first thing that our ancestors did was choose the calmest, friendliest towards human animals and consistently breed those individuals. And then Belayev thought that somehow or another, 
all these other characteristics like the floppy ears and curly tails and so on somehow were genetically connected to choosing the calmest, tamest animals. He, he didn't know how, but, but that's what his hypothesis was. So he begins to develop this hypothesis, and he really, um, you know, the early 1950s is when he's really thinking a lot about this. But, of course, this is also the time when um, Lysenko is still in power. He's not quite as powerful as he was, like, in the early to mid-40s, but in 1948, he gave this um, infamous speech, and um, he um, he basically was arguing that all of what, we would sort of call Mendel's work on genetics, Western genetics. He argued it was all um, a sort of uh, bourgeois capitalist lie. Um, and so what was happening was that Lysenko was um, rising up in the Soviet hierarchy, but not just as a scientist, but as a political force. And he basically became Stalin's right-hand man. Um and on, on, on issues of, of science. And, and ba- so what was happening was people were being, thousands of Soviet geneticists lost their job because Lysenko said, this is all nonsense what they're doing. He had an alternative theory, but that's a little bit beside the point for, 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 for our purposes. Um, and so thousands of people were being thrown into, into jail were losing their jobs. Hundreds of people were um, being thrown into jail for doing modern Western genetics. And in fact, a couple of dozen people were actually murdered by Lysenko's thugs while um, this was happening. So the reason that that's important is that what Belayev imagined doing, even 10 years before the experiment started, was to work with these foxes that he now had some experience with. And what his plan was, would be that he would select the calmest, tamest foxes every generation, and he would breed them. And then the next generation, when those uh, when those foxes' offspring grew up, he would again select the calmest, tamest ones. And foxes breed about once a year, and well, exactly once a year. And um, and he would do this every year, year in and year out, to see if he was getting calmer, tamer foxes, which is what you might expect from this kind of genetics evolution experiment, and also whether he was getting the other traits in um, that we see in domesticated animals, you know, low stress hormone levels, lots of color in their fur, floppy ears, um, lots of other characteristics. This is what Belayev was envisioning was a classic experiment in evolution. And that was exactly what people were losing their jobs for, going to jail for, and on occasion being killed for at the time. And so what Belayev had to do was figure out a way to essentially do this experiment um, without facing any of those consequences. I mean, he was a, this was an extraordinarily brave guy. I mean, he, he fought in World War II and received every medal you can receive for bravery. And so he wasn't physic- he wasn't scared of Lysenko per se, but he understood that he needed to do this experiment in a way that it didn't get stopped by Lysenko and, and, and his thugs. And um, the fact that he had worked with foxes helped Alea because, as I mentioned earlier, there was so much money coming into the Soviet Union from selling fox furs. Um, to the United States and Europe, that Belayev could essentially tell the government 
that he was interested in basically fox breeding and fox fur coloration. And that, and, and, and they, would basically turn their back, his hope was, uh, on the fact that this was, this was an evolution experiment because there was so much money involved. Um, and he wasn't lying when he said he was interested in fox reproduction and fox fur uh, patterns because he was, but, but only in the sense of what it would tell him about domestication. So that's how um, he was able to sort of sneak under the radar initially and get the experiment running. The last thing I'll say on that is the other key thing about letting getting the experiment running in the first place was that um, in 1958, Belayev was offered this incredible job at, at, um, at the place you had mentioned earlier, which is Akadem Gordak. And this was sort of an oasis of research centers that were set up in Novosibirsk, Siberia. And Belayev was um, offered a major position in this new institute on, in biology. And so he moved um, his family to to Novosibirsk uh, in Siberia to um, to take this job, and that's where the fox experiment really began. And that also gave him a little bit of cover because Siberia was so far away from the heart of Lysenko's power that it would be more difficult for him to cause trouble. Certainly not impossible, and in fact. Um, there were instances where the whole thing, almost, the, the Fox experiment almost uh, ended because of Lysenko, but it would be a lot harder for Lysenko to be um, as dangerous as he might be if, if Belayev stayed in Moscow. So there's a long answer to a short question. <laughs> oh, you're my ideal podcast guest, Lee. Here we love long answers to short questions. <laughs> okay, good. Okay. Um, one of the things, um, gosh, I have a lot of... Um, uh, notes here, and I'm trying to work out which bit to dive into first. I think one of one of the surprising things about domestication um, is that um, you see large changes in the behavior, um, even the appearance, and um, and uh, the mating um, behave the mating patterns. The hormones. There's an entire when you select for just just tameness, you get this entire suite of changes that come along yeah. for the ride in the foxes, yeah. and within a surprisingly short time. And um, you uh, said towards the beginning of the book that that um, it, it used to be thought that for the kinds of changes that that accompany domestication to happen. Um, would require eons because it would be dependent on the very gradual natural selection processes, uh, selection operating on individual genetic mutations. And instead, what we see from domestication is an idea I think familiar to people who, who are, um, familiar with, uh, Evo Devo with evolutionary developmental biology. Um, that the cha- most of the kinds of changes are not operating on selection between different um, uh, different genetic variations, different uh, um, mutated alleles, um, but between um, you use the term destabilizing selection as a shorthand for this, but it's about um, where genes can be altered without this necessity for mutation by 
changes to when the genes are activated or deactivated, um, and changes to gene expression and timing. Could you talk a little bit about that, um, about how, how this kind of domestication experiment uh, demonstrated how this works? Yes, sure. I, I'd be happy to. I, I should say, you know, in, um, one of the things that, that this experiment shows is how quickly the process of domestication can actually take place. But I think, you know, when we, when we say that, we have to be a little bit careful. I mean, we think, for example, that the process of domestication, let's say from wolf to dog, you know, this was, in fact, something that happened, rel- you know, in evolutionary time quickly, a couple of thousand years maybe um, the Fox experiment, you know, we've seen basically the process of domestication occur in 60 generations, but that's because um, this was done essentially at high speed. I mean, um, the experiment was set up to to really create dramatically strong selection pressure. So mm-hmm. it's not like we think that this kind of thing could really happen in 60 years in the wild. But nonetheless, if it happened in 500 years, that's that's nothing. That that's that's nothing in evolutionary time. Um, now, in terms of um, the Evo Devo um, approach here, um, and so I, I do talk about this um, often early on um, in Belayev's ideas as destabilizing selection, because that's the term that Belayev used. Um, and, and, and you're right. So uh, um, what they are discovering now, especially in the last 10 to 15 years, when a lot of the work on the silver fox domestication experiment has been molecular genetic work, where they've essentially sequenced a lot of the silver fox genome, and they've compared that genome um, to, for example, silver foxes that have not been um, domesticated, and also compared it to dogs and other canids. Um, What it shows us nicely is that many, many of the changes that have occurred, as you say, have not been um, in the classic sense of a new mutation occurs, increases in frequency over time. And this happens, let's say, with respect to all the different kinds of things that are part of domestication, what we refer to as the domestication syndrome, all of those things that we've been talking about. Instead, what happens is you get changes in the timing of, of when traits turn on and turn off, um, changes in what, what's called gene expression. And so this has turned out to be um, an experiment that really shows the power of um, uh, uh, gene expression, um, an evo-devo approach to understanding evolution. Now, I think what's really important to understand is, uh, and I think this speaks to Belayev and and the power of this experiment. So when Belayev first started thinking about this, there was nothing that really resembled what we would call Evo Devo today. Some of the ideas had been around for a long time, but there was no field of evolutionary de- developmental biology. There was no real significant literature, even even small amounts of it. There was nothing on sort of the role of gene expression as a major force in evolution. Nonetheless, that's what Belayev thought was going on mm-hmm. from day one. Even in the 1940s, way before there was any literature on this, Belayev was talking about it. And I will say that 
one of the most um, powerful moments for me when I was researching this book was, you know, I had a translator. I mean, my Russian is barbaric. I mean, I, so I, when, it, when it comes to reading, uh, uh, you know, having a, a long document in Russian, I have, tr- I have translators who help me. And we have this, um, so we had some documents of Belayev's from very, very early on when he was thinking about this. So even the late 1940s. And reading these documents, you, you, can, you can see here's this guy and he really has a grasp on what today we would call evolutionary developmental biology, even though there is no such thing mm-hmm. at that time. And you're reading it, and, and it, at, at points, it, it, it's almost painful because you can see that he doesn't, have the, the, he doesn't have the words, he doesn't have the terminology, but it's like he's painting to figure out how to say the basic ideas that we now know are correct, even though there's no nomenclature, there's no, there's no vocabulary that he can work with for this sort of thing. But, but, but this is what he thought early on. And now we, you know, now we know um, there are certain genetic hotspots on certain chromosomes that are associated with lots of gene expression differences that are, um, that are involved in uh, silver, fa- silver fox domestication. Um, and in fact, we, um, we meaning this is the royal we meaning um, uh, Ludmila and particularly uh, Ludmila Trump and particularly Anna Kukakova who sort of is one of the leads on the molecular genetic side of the Fox work, what they're finding is, um, like I say, these genetic hotspots. Um, and, uh, and, and they're able to compare these things, for example, to the, um, to the equivalent chromosomes in dogs, what evolutionary biologists would call the homologous chromosomes. They're, they're the equivalent of the fox chromosome in a in another cane, in this in this case dogs, and remarkably enough, there are similarities um, between the change, the gene expression changes um, that we can map out in dog evolution and dog domestication with what happened with the silver foxes over the course of a, a much more a, a much shorter, more intense bout of of selection. Yeah, I I think that that I mean the Evo Devo stuff didn't was really in the in the nineties, right? Wasn't it until the nineteen nineties that um, yes, I mean, Sean B. Carroll's book uh, Endless Forms Most Beautiful, which I think is the kind of best popular introduction to Evo Devo. Right. I mean the kind of the kind of book that somebody like me with zero science background can read. Uh, your book is also that kind of book, um, by the way, to readers. Um, I have the that I come to these kinds of books with a sort of understanding of science that you would expect from someone who has a PhD in English literature. Um, And nevertheless, it's very clear and easily understood. Um, And I, Sean B. Carroll's book um, was published in 2005. Um, So that's, that's extremely recent. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think um, so, uh, Right. And, and Sean actually had a book um, that was maybe 10 years before that, that was a more technical book mm-hmm. on, on this. Sort of thing. But you're right. I would say I would say what we now refer to as the modern field of, of Evo Devo really kicks off, you know, um, early 1990s, late 1980s. But uh, that said, 
um, you know, there really were some kind of nascent ideas that were being kicked around even in Darwin's time, but very, very, um, you know, very, very vague kinds of ideas. Um, uh, and, uh, uh and not quite on 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 this uh, on this component of Evo Devo that we're that we're talking about. So um, you know, as I say, it's 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 really remarkable that um, that even in the 1940s, j- just when the idea of this experiment was 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 coming about, that that Belayev was able to. Um, Propose that really this is all this is all what we would now call Evo Devo um, gene expression stuff, and, and I say all of it. I you know obviously there are other components, but 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 a large chunk of it is being driven by that. Yeah, I one of the things is first of all um, the the kind of speed with which these changes happen imply that it's not all about. Um, it's not all about selection between different gene mutations because that process just isn't fast enough. Um, and the other thing is that the kind of, uh, the sort of cascade of changes, the number of things that if you select for one element come along for the ride that don't yes. even seem connected. So for yes. example, um, as you write in the book, domesticated animals by comparison with their wild counterparts tend to often have spotted or patched or brindled uh, coats. And um, the foxes, for example, have have this uh, star, a star on the forehead, many of the foxes, of white fur on the forehead. And that is probably a knock-on effect of changes or one of the hypotheses that, that you, I don't know if you propose or cite, I can't remember in the book, um, is that this has to do with a change in a neural uh, crest cell. Yes. Um, yes. So that these are cells in the developing organism that are uh, migrating to different parts of the body. Um, so they're, they're still stem, cell, stem cells undifferentiated. And one of yes. the things that happens when this, when there's something intervenes and changes the developmental process at that stage is that Certain hair cells um, migrate to a different place on the body and are therefore creating the white crest. That's a really oversimplified explanation, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. It's changes in timing in the cells responsible for hair coloration, the expression yeah. of these cells responsible for hair coloration that are causing a white star, um, even though nobody is selecting for a white patch on the forehead of the foxes. And that's the that's sort of the opposite of the old idea that, of candidate genes that there's a gene for this and a gene for that. It's more like a set of kind of dominoes that you're just flicking the first domino and then you're going to get a lot of changes down the line. Yes, right, and and so um, absolutely, and, and and in fact, we we, we do talk about um, the neurocrest cell hypothesis, um, and um, and and and. You know, every time there, I mean, there's there's constantly more um, information that's coming out that suggests that this really is um, a, a a critical component of of what's going on um, in the uh, in the silver foxes and basically in all domestication experiments. And and I'll give you sort of a little bit of an overview, but um, if your listeners are interested, um, there's a there's a fantastic paper by um, 
by uh, with who's the first author is um, Wilkins, and it was in genetics in 2014, and it's and it's all about this experiment, all about excuse me, it's all about um, the neuroquest hypothesis. So basically, right, what what the way you described it, 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 it is correct, and there's but there's even more to it. So. Um, yeah, neuroquest cells are, are essentially stem-like, undifferentiated cells. And, and they basically move along this, this crest very, very, very early in development of, of, of mammals. And, um, and the, what, what we do know from, from the work that, that, that's been done on neuroquest cell um, development is that is that these cells, they migrate, as you say, to all sorts of different parts of the body. Now, almost every one of the traits that, that, that are in this domestication syndrome, all the changes, the different changes that are happening, are affected by neural crest cells. And the thing that's really astonishing is that almost all of those changes can be explained by... Um, Either a reduction in the number of neural crest cells, or in a reduction in the speed at which they migrate to these different parts of the body. So the one example that you mentioned, the white star, but just generally, um, kind of a patchiness in, in the coat coloration. This is because if you don't, because one of the things that neural crest cells affect indirectly is melatonin production, that the, the production of the cells that create the color in the coat. If you have fewer neural crest cells, or if they don't get to a certain place in time, then what you have is that area doesn't have the coloration that the other areas around it might have. And this creates the, sp the spottiness and the patchiness and the patterns. But but even more remarkably in some ways is that the neural crest cell hypothesis explains things like, why is it that you see so many domesticated species who have floppy ears? Now, dogs would be the classic, but pigs, cows, lots of different species have floppy ears. They also have, they tend to have shorter, curlier tails than their wild ancestors. Well, we know that neural crest cells are involved in building cartilage. And if you have either fewer neural crest cells or they're not moving quickly enough, and so you think about the development of the ear, if you have less cartilage in your ear, you get floppy ears. If you think about a tail and you have less cartilage in your tail, you will get a shorter, often curlier tail. And almost every one of the domestication syndrome effects can be explained by fewer neural crest cells or slower moving neural crest cells. The big, one of the big questions then is, okay, so why do, why, why would we have fewer neural crest cells, um, in domesticated species? This is still, um, an open question, but the basic hypothesis is that if Belayev was right and early on, the key thing in domestication is selecting for calmer, tamer animals. It might very well be the case that those animals naturally either have slightly fewer neural crest cells or slower moving neural crest cells. And if you constantly select generation after generation um, for those animals, you are going to get a, you are over time going to have a, 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 a domesticated animal that has fewer neural crest cells that move, move more slowly. And when that happens, 
that's what leads to all of these changes that we've been talking about. So the key kickoff point, again, is likely selecting for calmer, uh, more friendly towards human animals. I mean, this is really, I mean, this is mind-blowing stuff to me. Um, and, uh, and the fox experiment has sort of been at the forefront of understanding this. So tell me, tell us about some of the other changes that are associated with um, domestication. So there were changes in the endocrine system and also to mating patterns. Um, and in for to to kind of give this a little bit of uh, concreteness, um, one of the the experiments that was conducted, I gather, at the farm at the fox farm was cross-fostering between aggressive and tame foxes to check whether the behavioral differences for tameness were uh, genetic or learned. So um, yeah. um, at, the, at the farm, um, they, were, they, they bred, they had a control group of foxes, a group of foxes selected and bred for tameness, and a group that were selected and bred for aggressiveness. And so yes. what they were eventually able to show is that um, domestication is not the same thing as taming, i.e. it's not yes. training an individual animal. Um, it's not the kind of thing that behaviorists used to think. It's not about just giving the animal food rewards or something and getting it to behave in a particular way, but it's actually genetically hardwired. And that, yes. uh, yeah, tell us about those cross um those okay. kind of cross-fostering experiments. Okay, we can do the cross-fostering, and then I, if you want, I can come back to the uh, to the hormonal work per se. Yes, um, that was a bit yeah. of a confused question, but yeah. yes. No, no, no. So let's let's do the cross-fostering first. And right, so um, this experiment was specifically designed to ask the question whether or not the changes that they were seeing in the domesticated foxes. So this was about, mm, I, I think about. Uh, 15 years into the domestication experiment. Um, and they wanted to, you know, they had lots of evidence that this, the changes they were seeing were genetic, but, but the definitive experiment to make sure that what you're looking at is genetic and not somehow learned is what you, what you, um, correctly refer to as a cross fostering experiment. Um, typically in animal behavior, a cross fostering experiment sort of looks like this, you know, um, you, you take eggs from one bird's nest. You take half the eggs from, 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 um, a set of birds that, um, that have a certain behavioral characteristic and half the eggs in a nest of a diff, of, 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 of birds who have a slightly different behavioral characteristic and you swap them out. So you take half the eggs from one set of nests and you move them into the other set of nests and you take half the eggs from that other set of nests and you move them over. And then you ra and then you watch what happens when the offspring develop. Well, what Ludmila Twip did, and this was, um, this was really, um, again, so far ahead of her times. Nobody had ever done this kind of experiment, um, in this way with a large mammal. In her, uh, in, in this experiment, what they, what Ludmila did was she learned had a transplant five day old minuscule developing fox embryos from the uterus of one fox to the uterus of another. And so, right. So what, so there are, there are these different groups of foxes on the farm. And the key ones for this experiment were 
the group we've been talking about a lot, which is the Fox group that's been generation after generation selected for calmer, tame, calmer, more friendly behavior. And another group of aggressive foxes that has been selected in the opposite direction for more aggression and less friendliness towards humans. So what Ludmilla does is she has, I think, about six or seven pairs of foxes that she's working with. And in each pair, she has one pregnant domesticated fox and one pregnant aggressive fox. What she does is she transplants these very, very small five-day-old embryos, half the developing embryos from the domesticated fox's uterus over to the aggressive fox's uterus, where she's taken out half of those embryos and moved them to the domesticated fox's uterus. So after the swap, what she has is each of those pregnant females now has half of developing embryos are her genetic offspring, and half of them are the developing embryos of the opposite kind of fox. So if it's a domesticated fox's uterus we're looking at, that means half the embryos are from the aggressive fox. If we're looking at the aggressive fox's uterus, then half of them are her genetic offspring, and half of them are from the domesticated fox. So the reason we do this experiment to understand if there's, if this is, if the changes are due to genetics versus learning is this, what you do is you wait. And when the foxes give birth, what you do is you watch and study the behavior of the pups from essentially as soon as they're able to sort of walk around and interact. Now, if the experiment, if, if the changes that you're seeing in the domesticated foxes and the aggressive foxes as well, if those changes are due to genetic changes, then you would expect that those embryos, for example, from a domesticated fox that you've moved over to the aggressive fox, aggressive fox's uterus, when they become pups, right, they are going to behave like their domesticated mother even though they have no interaction with her, if it's genetic. But if it's learned, then you would expect the transplanted embryos that develop into pups will behave like their foster mother, the one that they're growing up with and learning things from, right? So what you do is you see, do those transplanted pups I mean, they started as embryos, but do those, do, 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 do those pups behave like their genetic mother, regardless of what uterus they happen to grow up in, or do they behave like their foster mother? And what Ludmilla found was that those transferred embryos that became pups, when they, you know, they behave like their genetic mother, regardless of what uterus they were raised in, providing really strong evidence that what you're looking at is genetic. If those domesticated fox embryos that were transplanted, if when they were, uh, after birth, if they acted like their aggressive mother, then that would suggest that they learned from their aggressive mother. But in fact, they acted like their domesticated mother. And the aggressive mother did not like that. Um, but um, that's the way they behaved, st- showing really strong evidence for the, that the changes that we're looking at um, uh, are due to um, genetic changes. Does that make sense? Yes, like a twin study for foxes, in a sense. Yeah, that's right. Except absolutely. Except that except that it's even that it's more manipulative, mm-hmm. right? 
what you're talking about is right. This is this is why you do twin studies, but you don't move developing embryos from one unit to the other. <laughs> that would be the ultimate test. But of course, that's you know, of, of course, that's immoral. But um, but 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 in foxes, it's not. Um, and so um, a- anyway, um, yeah. So that explains um, the the, the cross fostering experiment. I think what uh, a, a, there are a couple of things that that um, most intrigue me. Um, one, I guess, is um, the hypotheses about how uh, canine domestication took place is likely to have happened, and also um, Belief's ideas about uh, human beings as self-domesticated apes. Sure. I mean, I don't have. Um... Yeah, I'm not sure how much more I can say um, that above and beyond what I said already about, um, for example, dog evolution um, and domestication. But we, you know, we can talk a little bit about that, um, and I, I'd be happy to um, I'd be happy to uh, talk about uh, human self domestication. Yes, let's talk about that. Okay. Uh, so yeah, all right. Um, one of the things that over time Belayev began to think about was this notion that domestication also plays a role in human evolution. So, so, so of course, evolutionary biologists have thought domestication is important in human evolution in the sense that when we domesticated animals and plants, that put us on a completely different evolutionary trajectory. But Belayev was thinking about something different, which was whether or not it was possible that human beings had domesticated ourselves. And basically, what he thought was that um, over, over human evolutionary time, what was happening was that when it came to choosing mates and when it came to interacting with peers in, for example, any kind of cooperative task, cooperative hunting, cooperative protection, that sort of thing. Um, that, 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 that when it came to those issues, that we were selecting individuals who were, in fact, friendlier, calmer, easier to work with, okay, right? Because that's what you want as a mate, and that's what you want when you're interacting in some cooperative task with individuals in your group. And so Blaya thought, well, that's very similar, essentially, to the selection pressures that he was proposing to explain domestication in non-humans. And he began to think that this human self-domestication was an important phenomenon, that instead of some external force choosing the calmest, friendliest individuals. We were doing this to ourselves, that these were criteria that we were using for choosing a mate and for choosing uh, those individuals who we interact with, right? I mean, if you're in a cooperative hunting task, you don't want to be out there with somebody that might, you know, kick you in the back when you're not looking. I mean, you want to interact with people who are going to be friendly and cooperative. Same thing when you're choosing a mate. So Belea starts to think this is important. And he actually talks about it a, a couple of times um, at various conferences um, in the early 1980s. And the thing about it is that in the last couple of years, 
there have been an explosion of studies, and I will mention in a second two books in particular, that are finding more and more evidence for this notion of human self-domestication. And what I mean by more and more evidence is that we are finding that when we compare humans to our closest genetic relatives, chimpanzees, bonobos, and other primates, we show many of those domestication syndrome traits. Obviously, we're not talking about curly tails and floppy ears, but we're talking about lower stress hormone levels. We're talking about changes in reproductive patterns. We're talking about um, other physiological and anatomical changes that are associated with domestication. We're seeing those kinds of traits in humans compared to other primates, the sorts of things that are part of that domestication syndrome. Now, I, you know, I, 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 um, what I, what I think the best thing to do here is, is to, is, is to have you and your listeners just, 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 um, if you're, if you want to learn more about this, and it's absolutely fascinating, I, I would suggest, um, uh, two books, and, and, and I would also, um, say either one of these people would be absolutely spectacular for a, um, for a podcast. There's Richard Rangham, who wrote a book called The Goodness Paradox. And the goodness paradox is essentially a book about human self-domestication. And um, there is another book, um, and I'm trying to pull this book up. Here we go. Um, in 2000, oh, no, I don't, um, I'll have to pull up the information. Um, by Brian Hare in 2017, that's also, I mean, a, a I'll get the date for you. Um, uh, that's also all about um, self human self-domestication. Um, but, but for our purposes, I think the key thing is that Belayev was, in fact, um, thinking about this um, long before any of this work, long before we sort of um, had a notion of, 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 of what, even what we should be looking for to test this hypothesis. He had this intuitive sense um, that, uh, that, that this was uh, uh, something worth studying. Um, and I, I'm sorry I sort of fumbled on Brian Hare's book. I, I found it here now. Um, it's by Brian Hare and Vanessa Woods, and it's called Survival of the Friendliest. And it, again, is about, um, for the most part, human um, self-domestication, and that came out um, in 2020. Um, those are both fantastic reads on, on this topic. Great. I'll put them, I'll put them in the show notes. Um, so Lee, I know that you have to go quite soon. Um, is there any important aspect to the book that you'd particularly like to highlight? And I haven't given you a chance to highlight. Well, I think we've, you know, I think we've touched on a number of, um, the major scientific themes that, 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 that are at the heart of this experiment. But I, I actually would like to say something else that's um, a little bit more um, the human element here. Uh, you know, I've had the chance twice to spend winter, some winter time with um, in Novosibirsk with um, not just the foxes, but with Mila Trut and the whole team of people that work on this experiment. And I, I want to just, you know, Ludmila in particular, these, these are just incredible people. I mean, they have devoted their lives to this study. Ludmila is 87 years old now. She has been working on this experiment every day since 1959. Um, devoted 
her, her life to understanding what was going on with the process of domestication. And it's not just Ludmilla, although she's the heart and soul of the experiment now. Um, there are a whole team of people, and they are just incredibly devoted to this project. And I'm not only talking about scientists. I'm not only talking about people who have PhDs in genetics and evolution. I mean, most of the people, most of the scientists fall into that category. But there's another group of people, and we talk about them in the book uh, as well. And they are what, you know, for lack of a better term, we might think of as kind of the workers. And these are people, they tend to be women, they tend to be from um, these villages that are close by to Novosibirsk and the Fox Farm. Um, and they tend to be, you know, um, relatively uneducated, but they are brought in um, to work on, help work this experiment. And, um, and I, I want to be careful about saying they're relatively uneducated. I mean that these are, these are not people who have um, advanced degrees in, 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 from a university. They are people who live in the local village, and they are hired to do um, work like feed the foxes. You know, you have 700 foxes. That's a lot of very, very hungry animals every day that need to be fed. They, they need to be watched to make sure that disease isn't breaking out. They need to have the cages clean. They need to have all sorts of maintenance things that require people to help. These workers are just as devoted to the experiment as the scientists are. And they... They may not understand the details of epigenetics and evo-devo, but that doesn't make them any less devoted to the experiment. They know that something really important is going on and they're a part of it. And their loyalty is, you know, over-the-top kind of loyalty. I mean, in the book, we tell a story where there was an experiment um, done and I can't remember, maybe it was in the 1980s or, or around then. Um, and it was an experiment that, that for all sorts of reasons, um, blood samples and the like had to be taken at 2 a.m. in the morning, you know, 2 a.m. Um, and in the winter. And Novosibirsk in Siberia at 2 o'clock in the morning in the winter is gorgeous, but it's cold. I mean, even when I was there, it was minus 35, and it gets colder than that. The workers, when, 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 um, Ludmilla and others asked them if they would come and help with the experiment, um, their motto, and Ludmilla loves to tell people this, the workers' motto is, if it's for science, we will do it. And so this little, um, rickety van would drive out to the village at two o'clock in the morning, pick up these women who would be leaving, you know, their little, you know, they would be leaving their family um, at two o'clock in the morning, coming over to the fox farm, helping, and then going back um, and getting a few hours sleep before they came again. And so, um, and, and these are the people that, for example, for example, in the, um, in that uh, cross-fostering experiment that we talked about, you know, Ludmilla did um, the technical things of moving the embryos, but of course, you never know exactly when a fox is going to give birth. You know, you, you have a pretty good sense it's going to be about, you know, 56 days or so, but, but you never know exactly. The workers were the ones that first discovered that the foxes in the, in the cross-fostering experiment had given birth. And they ran over 
to the Institute and Ludmila's office. And they were so excited. They brought um, cake and wine over to celebrate the fact that these foxes had been given, had given birth. And now they could, now um, Ludmila and her team could find out the answer to the scientific question. So I just think um, a lot of times that in these kinds of science experiments, um, people like that kind of get lost in the shuffle. Um, they get swept under the rug in a sense, not because, not intentionally, it's just that we tend to focus on the scientists per se. But, you know, if you sit down, and, and I did this for many hours with Ludmila and um, the scientists involved, you know, you get a sense of how much they care about and value these uh, these workers who help. That without them, the experiment couldn't go on, and they're not doing it for the money. I mean, Ludmila pays them whatever she can, but they're not getting rich doing this experiment. Mm -hmm. um, and nonetheless, there they are, and they're as devoted as anybody else. Yeah, wonderful. I mean, one thing yeah. that your book also really highlights is um, the atmosphere of cooperation and solidarity there on um at, on the fox farm and also the very deep bonds between uh people and animals that developed um and that was fascinating so oh, yeah right. go go ahead no no i was just gonna say yes um you know a a absolutely i mean you know um they have to approach this as a, the experimental parts of, as objectively as as possible but there are you know when you do a 60-year experiment um like this there are plenty of instances where there were um special bonds um formed and we have an entire chapter about one particular bond between ludmila and um, a family of foxes um that she lived with in a little house for um years as a kind of side component to this project um and right and and you know i mean you know, it, it, it's not surprising that these bonds form um, on occasion because, uh, I mean, these are canids and, 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 and the domestication has worked dramatically well. I mean, if you go to the farm now, and I've held these animals in my arms, they, you know, Ludmilla put one of the foxes and just handed the fox to me. And within five seconds, the domesticated fox was licking my nose and ears. These are animals that are... Um, as calm and wonderfully interactive as the calmest lapdog you could imagine. And so, you know, the notion that some bonds form between um, the scientists and the foxes is, is not surprising. It's not any more surprising than bonds form between you and your dog. But again, you know, the, there's that component, but then there's the very controlled, um, objective view of the experiment going on as well. I was wondering that as I was, as, as you've just been saying that, um, the accounts of, of the original domestication of dogs, for example, that are given focus very much on practical benefits, the practical benefits for the dogs and the practical benefits for the early humans, um, of dog human interactions, um, as being the kind of driving selective force, uh, behind domestication. But um, the the just the kind of emotional rewards of bonding with the dogs must have also been, um, for the dogs of bonding with us must have also been a, a factor in that decision. Um, if if dogs weren't as weren't as, as cute and lovely, um, then there there wouldn't have been as much of a drive to kind of domesticate them and have them living beside us. 
if I mean, if the if the interaction wasn't rewarding on both for both sides, that must be part yeah. of it. Yeah, I I understand what you're saying, and and, and I agree in, in the sense that um, you know, I mean, there's still lots of debate about how the actual process of domestication from wolves to dogs took place, but but certain things that are that are that are that are very obvious is that are that that you know, um, at at some point early in the process. Um, there were interactions between humans and wolves and, 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 and that those interactions, um, were likely, most likely between humans and those wolves that were sort of the least inhibited, the least scared, the least dangerous to humans, right? Otherwise mm-hmm. we, those are the wolves that would have come closer. Those are the wolves that we would have interacted with. And if they were not, if they were acting in a, interacting in a hyper aggressive way with humans, it wouldn't have worked. So there were some wolves, just natural variation where they were a little bit calmer and friendlier. And yes, um, you know, there are even some notions and this is, you know, this is very difficult to, um, to sort of piece together. Um, but, 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 but there, but there's this idea that, you know, um, it may have also included some instances where humans um, came upon wolf pups that were abandoned for one reason or another. And, you know, we know that humans have a tendency to, um, you know, to, to, um, to look at juvenile, we look at our own juveniles, there are certain characteristics that you see in human juveniles that immediately cause a behavioral and hormonal response in adults, you know, large eyes, certain things like that. Those also would have been present if we had come upon, in many instances, wolf pups that had been abandoned for one reason or another, that also would have created bonds. But yeah, so absolutely, um, you know, for the most part, the Fox experiment is this very controlled experiment. But we know that when dog evolution was occurring, there certainly was some selective breeding of the calmest, tamest ones. But there was also all sorts of other kinds of bonds that would have been forming between these animals that were all of a sudden providing us with various benefits and us. It would have facilitated it for both parties involved. And I don't, I mean, I I just want to sort of, uh, there's, in the book, there's maybe my favorite chapter is about um, this, this, sort of side experiment I briefly touched on where I said for a couple of years Ludmila lived in a house with a family of foxes um, that you know grew and grew and grew over time. The the reason that Ludmila did that was this was about 15 years into the experiment. And it was very clear by this point that the changes that they were seeing were due to genetic changes. But Ludmila understood, just like what we've been talking about, that in the process of domestication, these bonds, even early on in the process, would have formed between humans and the animals they were domesticating. And she wanted to have a little bit of a sense of what that was like. Mm-hmm. You know, were the foxes that she had domesticated, were they behaving in a way that, you know, facilitated these bonds, even 15 generations into her experiment? So she moves in with this fox whose name is Pushinka, which means tiny ball of fuzz. And Pushinka's pregnant. Pushinka's pregnant. He gives birth, and um, and Ludmila lives with Pushinka and her pups. And she wants to understand sort of 
a little bit about the bonding we've been talking about. So, so there's that component to this, this experiment. And I, I kind of say it's a side part of the experiment because, you know, 99.9% of the foxes in the experiment, there's, there's nothing, there's no opportunity to bond with humans because we, because they don't want that to happen in the experiment, right? But that doesn't mean they don't want to understand it. And, and so they do, um, and, and so Ludmila did this. Living with Kuchinka and the foxes. Wonderful. Um, Lee, I know that you, your time is very limited and, uh, I, I, I just want to refer everybody to the book, uh, which is a fantastic read. And I think we've only really scratched the surface of a few of the topics that come up. Um, and, uh, thank you so much for joining me. It is my pleasure. Thank you. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.